Lately, we've been seeing a growing number of mergers and acquisitions in the manufacturing space. After these deals are finalized, there's a lot of uncertainty for the employees caught in the middle of everything. Today's guest on the show, Jennifer Fondreve, consults companies to deal with the problems that come with uncertainty in the workplace. This episode's going to be helpful for anybody dealing with uncertainty in their work environment. This is Swarfcast, the show that helps professionals in precision machining excel in their careers. I'm your host, Noah Graff. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. I am very honored to be with Jennifer Fondreve, best-selling author of Now What? A Survivor's Guide for Thriving Through Mergers and Acquisitions, and the founder and owner of Day One Ready. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you. And you nailed it. You nailed my last name. So impressed. Well, that's why we talk, you know? <laughs> that, that. So first, I just want to get the real basic basics about day one ready. And then I want to get your story a bit. And then we're going to we're going to dig deep. So just, you know, to give people a little context, what is day one ready? What do you guys do? The two minute Cliff's Notes version. Um, you bet. My assumption is day one ready is a very the name is pretty important to summarizing what you do. It is. So as you and I talked about, my background's in marketing. And so I'm very particular about the words and descriptions and branding. And so for me, key to launching my business was having a company name that articulated very quickly my philosophy. So day one, ready, is intentionally named that way because I felt that too often in mergers and acquisitions, buyers, sellers, both sides thought day one was the moment they announced something, right? That, that they announced the deal, that they announced the merger, that they announced the coming together. Uh. And my philosophy was, nope, that is not day one. Your day one is from the moment you as leaders or business owners or CEOs start thinking about a merger or an acquisition. Because whether you realize it or not, your actions, your decision making is all influenced by your thinking about a merger and acquisition. So even if you don't share with anyone 
that you're thinking about doing a merger or an acquisition, people start to pick up on your decision making, your the fact that you're traveling a lot, that you're not in the office, that there's a lot of signs that people pick up on. So my focus is helping you be day one ready so that the moment you make that announcement, you are ready for all the questions you'll get. Your people are ready because people have insight uh, on the process. And that's what I bring. Day one ready brings you insight into here's what to expect. This is how people react. Here are all the ways that you need to be prepared as a leader to help help your people navigate the change that's going to happen. So the people who come to you are the acquirers. It's been both sides. I have worked with acquirers, acquirees. Uh, I've worked with private equity who acquire companies, you know, to create a portfolio. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really uh, has run. Uh, it's run the gamut. It's been a variety of clients, which actually is encouraging to me because that says both sides recognize the importance of what I do. Right. So somebody who's got starting to consider buying and selling a company, they go to you. They just like right at the beginning. (laughs) Because this is, you know, uh, we're in two businesses. We, I have this podcast and today's machining world, our um, web publication, but also you know, I'm a machinery dealer. And one of the main things we've been getting into um, the new stuff is mergers and acquisitions. We call ourselves consultants. It's more convenient that way, I think. Uh, Yeah, I understand. So yeah, one of the challenges that we've had is getting the people's minds in the right place. The people who are going to be acquired, you know, that's a big challenge. So it's the number one challenge. In my view, obviously, I mean, that's why I wrote the book. It's the it's the human capital. It's the people challenges. I hate the word human capital. It reduces people to inventory as if they're assets. Uh, It's really it's the people challenges, human nature. But the people. people, Yeah. And the people who are going to be leaving, too, you know, and they Mm want to they start out thinking it's really important for all my employees to stay and then things change and they go, well, fine, the choir wants to move it. And it, it seems like as the process goes on, people's minds evolve and potentially some, a company like Graf Pinkert, I suppose, could come to you to, in a way, partner as far as helping these people who are trying to decide whether they want to sell or not. Is that one of the things you do too? like kind of help them with the soul searching? I don't help them with the decision making. What I do as a CEO whisperer, uh, as I've been called, is really help them think through what they're looking for, what will be the potential positives and challenges of the deal. What What is the reason they're pursuing it? How are they thinking about it? But I am not an advisor on you know, how to evaluate, how to value their business, what the valuation should be, who to partner with. I really talk to them about you are about to pursue a merger or an acquisition. Here are all the ways that you need to prepare yourself, your leadership, and then your workforce for what to expect. I want to try and give every M&A deal the best chance for success. And so I give them insights into what are traditionally the biggest challenges that leaders face related to people. 
uh, it's because those are the challenges not only that I experienced, but when I wrote my book, I interviewed 60 plus CEOs, CFOs, and these are Fortune 500, but also uh, small and middle, middle sized business, uh, business owners and executives. And consistently they shared the same challenges that they had with people. Uh, in terms of sure. how people react to change. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, we're encountering it like, when do you tell the people? And I and I know because I saw you uh, at the PMPA conference that we're going to get into that. Okay. Fascinating. How did you get into this? What sort of serendipity <laughs> uh, Why the hell do I do this? <laughs> what, why the hell do you think that you know about this? I mean, and what... Yeah, what's your background? So I was a uh, chief marketing officer, uh, VP of marketing uh, at several multi-billion-dollar companies, and I went through three separate multi-billion-dollar deals. Um, the first one that I talk about in my book is really what motivated me to write the book. Uh, Naptech was a digital map maker. Now maps are ubiquitous, right? You use your map on the phone, I'm sure, probably daily. But back in the late 90s, early 2000s, maps were not ubiquitous. And so I had the privilege of working at Naptech, heading up the B2B marketing. We were acquired by Nokia in 2008 for roughly $9 billion. If you know anything about that time period, Apple had just come out with an iPhone in 2007, and it completely redefined what people were looking for from a phone. So I won't bore you with the details of that. That's a case study for uh, some graduate school students. But the experience of that acquisition made me realize, God, there's just got to be a better way to do M&A. Um, we were different culturally. Nokia was B2C and we were B2B, business to business. Mm. And uh, they were fin we, from Finland, too. So Correct. Yep. So you had that cultural aspect. Uh, we also came, we both came to the deal with arrogance, a lot of ego. Uh, and whenever I'm asked, what's the one piece of advice you would give to people as they come to a deal? I say consistently come to the deal with respect for the other side. You have to treat this like a marriage. If you don't have respect for the other side, this is doomed to fail from the beginning. I have never seen a deal go well, uh, when both sides are either arrogant or one side's arrogant thinking they're saving another business. It just doesn't tend to uh, lead to a successful M&A deal. So that's really, Noah, what what was my first thought about, it first just started, I was going to write a book after writing, after um, navigating the Nokia Naptech M&A deal. You were one of a ton of employees in this mix. I guess you're a very observant person and we're you, you just started thinking about well thank you a, well i don't know i'm that's my assumption that that you were you're like looking around you're one of i just you're one of their you peers know, right and i think here's what i would say that first acquisition was the most difficult for me because i didn't know what to expect someone jokingly said to me the book title should have been what to expect when you're not expecting to be acquired 
I just, I had no sense of how things play out and I couldn't find a book to help me. And you aren't sure who to trust, particularly in multi-billion dollar acquisitions Yeah. because everyone's, everyone's jockeying for position. They're jockeying for their own role. So people who you thought were allies can become enemies. People who you didn't even know that well can suddenly become allies. And I wanted to paint a picture for people of what to expect. Now, I will qualify that my experience, these were multi-billion dollar deals. So what I've just described is not consistent with every deal. But when you are in mega corporations, you you can see a side of people that you don't expect. And when I was interviewing CEOs and I showed them the 10 personalities that you were exposed to during the PMPA uh, presentation I gave, every CEO, every CFO, every CHRO said, oh, my gosh, I've, <laughs> I've encountered one of these personalities. Um, and so I knew it wasn't just my experience. All right. So what personality the are research you? research proved out. I try to be uh, the great unifier. That's the the person in who I describe in my book and who I'm not sure we talked about during the presentation, but they try. They can be a great galvanizer. Um, they can be the person who, even if you don't report to them, you look to them to see, is this deal a good thing or not? How is this going to play out? How they can be upended or undermined, I should say, is if they aren't politically savvy, if they aren't watching out for how the strategy is shifting, if they aren't really paying attention to how the metrics for success have changed, uh, and and that can be their undoing. Okay, very interesting. So, you know, what I wanted to cover in this interview is both the side of management and you know, the side of the people who are acquired. And, and I, I hope to get some tips and insight for both. One of the things that you talked about, is there more to the story that I cut off? Or is this a good jumping off point into? No, that's it. You you asked what drove me to it. Uh, it was really going through those three deals and realizing that the better way of doing M- doing M&A wasn't going to happen. Unless somebody, I'm not trying to p- present myself as Joan of Arc, but unless somebody started to say, you know, this could be done better. Thankfully, I have found a lot of people. You left Nokia and then you chose some other place that was acquired. Interesting. Exactly. So I went through two more times. And by the third one, I thought, OK, I've just got to write this book. The book idea was had been bouncing around in my head at that point for three years. Uh, so I spent two and a half years doing research both quantitative and qualitative, to make sure that when I provided... Were you still working for these acquired, for the company while you were writing the book? Or you started a, your own company? Yeah, I started it, but I'm sure you've experienced this yourself with doing a podcast. In marketing, you have very little downtime. There is no downtime. When you're doing marketing, it is a 365-day job. Uh, so running your own consulting firm, you had more time to write than working in marketing? No, I um, I chose after the third uh, acquisition, I was actually interviewing for more CMO roles and writing the book, doing the research for it. But I consistently had CEOs ask me, well, what are you doing besides the book? This is really good information. People need this. Uh, M&A deals 70 to 90% of them fail. And that's been a right. That was my next question. Trend line. 
So they, they said, you know, the, and people, because people underestimate how people react to change. They, they, they expect people to pivot quickly and that doesn't happen. And my book talks about that. So it was during those conversations with CEOs that I realized me just writing a book, getting it, working with the publisher and getting it out there was only going to, it wasn't even going to be a half solution because as they said, how are you going to get the book into the hands of the people who need it most? So that's why I know I launched day one ready in 2018. Well, you got to eat as well, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yes, you do. And a book, uh, a book from what I hear, you know, unless you're like Michael Lewis and you get a movie made out of it. I mean, can, yeah. can, can a book? Well, and I, but I didn't write the book expecting to make money off of it. I wrote the book simply because I wanted to have a book out there that helped people to navigate mergers and acquisitions, to know what to expect. But truly, after talking to CEOs who consistently said, this is, you would make a very good consultant on this because you've been through it. You've been on all sides and people, they don't know what to expect. But if they did, I, you know, CEOs proposed that they thought the success rate for M&A deals would get better. So does the book bring you M&A deals? The, the book itself? Uh, attracts the right types of leaders, forward thinking leaders who recognize that they can't just hope. Okay. Oh, after, after we make the announcement, this will all work out. I'll hand it over to HR and they'll take care of the people stuff. That is, that is not how it works. And you mentioned early on, you're equally working in the M&A space. So you know, that's not how things work. No. Once the deal is signed, you, you hope is not a strategy. Uh, I didn't coin that, but it's absolutely true. So I do, uh, as a consultant, I work with leaders and their teams to prepare them and then help their next level down. Yeah, that's the hard part. I'm glad I'm not involved with that. We just kind of make the deal and go on to the next one. So so we think. Tell me about the 70 to 90% failure stat that you, you were talking about in your talk. I, explain that. Um, that is a Harvard Business Review and McKinsey research. So it's based. What fails 70 to 90 percent times? It doesn't achieve its valuation by year one. So when you when you talk about an M&A deal, right, there are certain gates that need. What about Twitter, though? They're they're going to reach it. <laughs> that, that, hmm. I'll ask you about that later. Betting, I'll ask you about that later. person. I don't think so. Uh, and there's always a myriad of, of reasons, but consistently when I was interviewing CEOs and CFOs, they consistently said what they saw as leading to the lack of success were unexpected people challenges, things that they hadn't anticipated. To me, look, looking at that from afar, honestly, I wouldn't expect things to be, you know, gotten right in the first year. I, I think that's a bit unrealistic to expect it. So the 70 to 90 percent, I don't know. It, can you really even call that failure or is this just the right expectations? I think it is. I think it's exactly that. But if you've got it's just the right expectations this, or it's failure in the multi-billion dollar deals, right? They 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 share it with the press. They bring a lot of attention to it based on hitting these metrics and numbers, and here's how it's going to help the business. So to your point, it is seen as a failure when they don't, but exactly as you said, it's because they set expectations at this level when what you and I are talking about here, people don't pivot on a dime. So what tends to happen, particularly in those those big deals, is you'll have leadership who's aware 
frankly, they've maybe even been involved in making the deal happen for months. But now you announce it and you're expecting your entire workforce to pivot and move quickly. And if you haven't involved them early on, if they haven't had any idea that this is going to happen, then suddenly you're forcing people to pivot very quickly. Uh, and that just doesn't happen. Human nature, I would say human nature, it's not that humans don't like change. They abhor uncertainty. And that's, again, going back to my day one ready. Day one ready means you bring as much certainty as you can. There's a lot of things that are going to play out, variables you cannot control, but focus on what you can control. Prepare your people, have answers to questions. You know, again, don't hope things will just work out. Yeah, well, nobody wants unclarity. That I think that's that's a lot of what we want, right? I mean, I see it in business, like there's an election. Whether a Democrat or Republican becomes president, people are still going to need to manufacture, right? But mm-hmm. they want clarity. They want to know. Right. And, and it's probably not even going to change that much. It doesn't matter who becomes president. Once there's a president, they'll eventually buy stuff again. It's this whole unclarity thing that I hate. Right. Everybody hates. All right. I want to dig into this now because I know you can get really into depth here. Um <laughs> And we've, I mean, this has been a great overview, but now first, give me a few of the causes of disruption, this, the lack of clarity, what causes this lack of clarity, what causes people to get all crazed, and then we're going to discuss, you know, solutions, et cetera. Well, the, the, the lack of clarity, and again, this is from my point of view, it's based on my research, it's that too often Key decisions and, and, um, communication plans aren't developed in advance of announcing the deal. So in that due diligence, the focus is on the financials. It's on the transaction and the valuation, which absolutely it should be. My philosophy, my mission is to bring that people piece into the due diligence. It's why I work with a company called Virtus Partners. They are experts in due diligence from the transaction, quality of earnings, the audit, all of that. And they recognized in pursuing that, that the integration, preparing for that integration earlier in the process and due diligence was key to success for those deals. Oh, absolutely. Uh, And so as part of, I just focus on the human capital aspect, but they have an integration management office uh, leader. Her name's Galena Wallenitz, who's equally just uh, amazingly talented. And to to your point, right, her whole job is to bring clarity to here's what's going to happen. Here's how we set you up for success so that each department is clear on how they need to move forward once the deal is announced and that they can get things jump started by having had the discussions earlier. Yeah. So, but to your, to your, your un, unasked question, yeah. the reason why a lot of that lack of clarity happens is people don't think about that. They wait, the deal's announced. Suddenly people have questions all over the place. Um, you know, do I have my job? Are, are there going to be layoffs? Are we keeping this department? You know, all of these kinds of things that if that hasn't been tackled or at least discussed in advance, it creates unintentional chaos. Right. But the problem is they can't tell the employees too soon because then everybody will freak out before the deal. Right. They can't, but they can prepare for those questions in advance. Right. That makes sense. 
Okay, so one type of disruption feeling that causes disruption is people are worried about their jobs and their department. Uh, Absolutely. Technology, that's that's another big thing, right? Absolutely. Yes. Are you dealing with manufacturing companies a lot? Are you dealing with huge corporations? What is the the size of the companies you're working with? You know, no, it really runs the gamut. And, and I'm grateful for that. I've worked with um, small to mid-market companies. Uh, frankly, I love working with those companies because traditionally they don't have a human resource person who's who's been through multiple M&A deals. Um, it's kind of like a lawyer, right? You wouldn't pick a lawyer, uh, a litigation lawyer to help you with employment law. The same thing, right? HR, it, it's a specialty in mergers and acquisitions. And if your HR person has largely been your general manager compensation benefits, they will have insight into how to manage that. But as you and I have been talking, there's a lot that comes with how do you keep your workforce inspired, motivated, and moving forward. And so I enjoy working with small mid-market because typically they don't have that advisor on staff. Mm-hmm. And so, so you're not competing really, with somebody else who says, I, I, no, I know what's up. Right. And, and CEOs who I've worked with in the small mid-market group have said repeatedly, I'm so thankful that I found you. I wish, I wish I'd known you earlier when I did a few, uh, few other deals where we didn't know what to expect. So I work in that capacity with small mid-market, but I'll equally um, work with Fortune 500. Uh, Express Scripts was acquired by Cigna um, for $64 billion back in 2018. And they had me come in and speak to their leadership because they were used to being acquirer, and now they had been acquired. And, and so the CEO, Tim Wentworth, wanted to make sure that his – uh, leadership was prepared for what to expect. Did you, you didn't work with them like intimately step by step. It was more like, okay, let's bring Jennifer in and give you, this is sort of the primer. And, and then they had other people come in. Yeah. I mean, typically when it's multi-billion dollar deals, you, you, you have the big four firms that are working with companies because, you know, they're, they're everywhere. <laughs> they're integrated into everything. What are the big four firms? Well, you're like your Ernst and Young, your Price Waterhouse Cooper. Oh, Goldman yeah, Sachs, those. and they have people on staff that are doing that. Correct. Got you. Hey, listeners! I just wanted to remind you that you can see videos of our episodes on YouTube and other social media. So, if you want to see a cool tool or part that was described in the interview, or you just want to gaze upon my beautiful face you can go to the Today's Machining World YouTube channel. You can also link directly to the videos from the episode show notes. And now, back to the show. But I've worked, like I said, I've worked with companies who, even if they have them, they have me come in to help their executive leadership get really smart and crystal clear on the people, the people challenges. Maybe if it was a company that was like, say, a, $10 $10 million, selling for $10 million or something. I mean... Mm-hmm. Worked with that size as well. Right. Would that be somebody that you'd go and maybe like intimately consult with? Or would yes. it... Yeah. Okay. Because there, there, what I'm trying to do is not only help the leadership know what to expect, but traditionally, then they have me stay on for a, a month, you know, 90 days to help their next level leaders. 
because the next level leaders, frankly, it's the front line that get abused the most. And abused is not the right word, but they're the ones who feel the pressure the most because they may not have been directly involved in crafting the strategy. That's why I always say my book is written for the person who wasn't in the room when the deal was made, but who is burdened with the execution. And so I, I look to help that team of leaders be smart on not only, okay, how do you navigate this for yourself? Cause it's a marathon that you, you are going to be on. How do you do it not only to preserve your own energy and wellness, but how do you help your teams navigate what tends to be constantly shifting strategy as people figure out what works and what doesn't? Yeah. Fascinating. Um, let's break it down now even more. Now we're going to get into some of the employees, you know, when you spoke to the PMPA conference, I think you broke it into like 10 different types of people um, that you encounter with companies. I don't know if we if we're going to break. It wasn't an exhaustive list. It's just the the 10 that emerged that I saw consistently. And when I was interviewing executives, they said, oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's go we, into some of the biggies. I don't know if we're going to go through 10, but let's go through some of the biggies that occur with employees and then what management can do and what they can do. The ones that we that we shared during that PMPA presentation are are the big ones that we had some fun with. So the former rock star, that is the the person who consistently almost every interview I had they talked about that person, the person who in the original company had the Midas touch. They were probably part of building the company up, uh, defining the company's success metrics. It could have been head of sales, head of product, head of marketing, you know, the person who had the CEO's ear, but everyone saw them as uh, a rock star. And the struggle that can happen that will turn them into a former rock star is once the deal is done, the metrics for success change. They just do naturally. You you pursue a merger and acquisition as a growth strategy. It means that the way the, the business was going before isn't necessarily what's going to get you to the next level. So you pursue this merger and acquisition to do that. Right. For like perhaps this person was, quote unquote, indispensable. Yeah. And And then now, you know, the company is trying to create something where you know, there's some redundancy and nobody's dispensed. Everybody's dispensable because it's not necessarily a matter of being dispensable or indispensable. Uh, it's that the metrics for success change. And often a rock star has gotten to that position because he or she had a certain way of doing things and they were successful doing it that way. When the metrics for success change, they have a difficult time pivoting. Because what made them successful now is not what's going to make them successful in this new iteration of the company. And they have a hard time letting go of the old way of doing things because that's what made them successful. Right. Maybe there's so a higher standard or maybe there's a, a higher standard for efficiency or output or or maybe so the, they want an something example else. I can, an example I can give you uh, that I talk about in the book is a head of sales uh, in a company. He was phenomenally successful selling a product a certain way. After the deal was done, they moved from product sales to solution selling. It wasn't so much about the product, but getting in with clients to be the solution service for them. And the product, you know, the portfolio of products was part of that, but it was really a solution sale. That sales leader 
had a very hard time pivoting because he had been so successful working with clients, promoting products and, and really delving into it from a product standpoint. So shifting and now trying to be a, a solution sales oriented sales leader uh, was very difficult for him. And so it's just one example. You know, you can have people who struggle in multiple ways, but that's just so I'm I want to be clear. It's not just sales that is that an error that the acquirer makes, like trying to put a round peg in a square hole or that's it's not necessarily a bad idea. to. Nope. it's it's I just highlight that's an aspect of human nature that people don't anticipate. Leadership thinks, oh, everyone's going to love this. It's going to be huge growth potential for everyone without factoring in the human nature aspect of change. So the former rock star is a perfect example of, because this is when CEOs would repeatedly say to me, I thought my head of sales was going to continue to be a rock star, but he really struggled. Now, the, the, the flip side of this, though, that I think is important, because I don't want this to all be doom and gloom, new rock stars can emerge. It's why I, I always counsel CEOs to say, just be prepared. You may have people who you counted on who really struggle, but you will be surprised at the, the silent rock stars who rise to the occasion because these metrics for success they get and it optimizes their skill set in ways that perhaps, uh, they hadn't before or they, they really are now into where the company is going. It can happen for a variety of reasons, but I say to CEOs, be open to new rock stars emerging. You can't, you can't waste too much time trying to help this former rock star, you know, stay a rock star. They're either going to or they're not. And I talk about in the book, you know, ways to, to help that. And we talked about that in the presentation. But I equally say to CEOs, be open to the emergence of new rock stars. It sounds like, uh, have you ever read Moneyball? You know, I have. It sounds like when, when they put um, Scott Hatterberg to first base from catcher yes, and he was like, <laughs> he was like, I don't want, you know what? I don't know how to play first base. I don't, I'm a catcher. And they're like, well, you get on base and this is what you, we want you for. And yeah, sure enough, it worked. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah. I've read a, a number of Michael Lewis's books. Yeah. But with the, with the rock star, cause you said, so how do you help the, the number one piece of advice I, I highlight to CEOs is you can't coddle a rock star, right? Because then he or she tends to keep things as the old way of doing things. You want change. You pursued this deal for growth strategy purposes. So you can't coddle them. Acknowledge the really important role that they played in helping get the business to where it is. They may, he or she may feel, I made this company. I helped this company even be considered you know, a company worthy of a, or of an M&A deal. But then after that, you've got to role model the behavior that shows, listen, we've got new metrics now that we got to work, work towards. You were incredibly important to the company to get us here, but now you've got to pivot in order to take us to the next level. But the management and, has to make sure that they don't screw it up and have him leave. Or, or maybe they don't care if he leaves, but... after After a certain point, that or she, I mean, leaves. He or she can become toxic. And so the that's why I say you can't coddle that person. They're either going to pivot or they aren't. There's only so much you can do. I've given you examples of, of 
how to help them. But after a certain point, if you let that person stay on and they continue to say, this isn't going to work. I told you so. We should have kept to doing this the way I used to do it. Look at how successful we were in the past. Again, you're holding on to the past. You're holding on to past achievements. But now, post-deal, there's a lot of opportunity ahead of you. But if you're constantly, you know, directing all your energy to how you used to do things, you won't see those opportunities moving forward. And I will absolutely confess, I know this firsthand because I, I did that. I held on to the past. I was the head of B2B marketing globally. I thought that was a really important role when I was at NAPTEC. Okay, so you got the rock star. And then um, what's another one? Quitter? That was the missing in action. That's the missing in action. Those, okay, explain yeah. that. So those are the people in the company, and this tends to happen more so in the multi-billion dollar deals. It can happen in the smaller deals as well, though. The people who hold back, they really don't contribute much. They don't volunteer and lead anything. They put in the bare minimum because they're trying to see how things are going to play out. And so the reason why in our discussion I referenced quiet quitting is it's it's a lot of that same same symptoms, right, where they actively disengage, but you may not necessarily pick up on it right away because they're there. They're physically present, but you aren't even sure what they do. And the the story that I uh, talked about in my book is you're all on this big conference call, right? Everyone's chiming in. In the case that I used, it was a Nokia Naftec conference call. And you hear, you know, hola, Jose from Mexico City and... Jorge from Spain and, and you have people from all over the world. And then you have, yep. Hi, it's Bob here. And people go, Oh, wow. Bob, Bob's on the call. What does Bob do? I didn't even know Bob was still here. Like you suddenly hear his voice, but no one knows what he does. And so, uh, you know, and, and it's just, it's that person that goes under the radar. They hold on to the job, but they contribute very little because they're holding back, waiting to see what happens. And this can be enormously detrimental to a deal if you have too many people who are missing in action because nobody's doing the work. So that's why I talked earlier about the need to prepare for what's that org chart going to look like? What, what will be the, the titles, the departments? Are people going to maintain the same compensation? Will they have their vacation days? These sound like, you know, very basic questions, but the more you don't have answers to basic questions, the more people worry about and hold back to see what's going to happen. And the more you have people who are nervous and uncertain of their future and they don't do their job because they don't, they don't know what's going on. Would you say that providing clarity for people is more important than paying them more? Well, I think there, I, to me, it's not an either or situation. Compensation clearly plays a role, uh, in, in, in big and small deals. Every time I talked with CEOs, compensation always, always plays a part. Particularly if you've got certain key talent you want to hold on to. That's why you, you've heard about the golden handcuffs, right? There's, hey, if you stay on a year, you'll get XYZ bonus because you want them to stay on, particularly because the moment recruiters hear about a deal that's happening, they're circling. It's kind of like, uh, as I joked at, during the presentation, 
it's like chum in the ocean for sharks, right? <laughs> like so, you know, recruiters are finding out, oh, okay, a deal's going on. Well, you know, there's you typically with merger and acquisition deals, things drag on. Do you want to stay at that company? Because I got a couple of great roles where they'd love to have you, right? So I always say to CEOs, you need to be crystal clear on who your key talent is and make sure you hold on to them. But oftentimes with talent, compensation is one small part. They want to feel valued. They want to feel like they're contributing and they want to, they want to know what the mission is and the role that they have in it. So that's why I am always pushing for being crystal clear. And what's the vision? Why are these two companies coming together? What value do both companies bring? What is that mission moving forward so that people understand the role that they can play and how they contribute? If you only, if you only do the money, they may hold on just to get the money but they, they can hold back from actually contributing in a big way because they don't buy into the vision or they don't understand the vision. And, and that's why the communications piece uh, of post-deal is critical. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously nobody wants to have their salary decreased, but I guess from what I hear, you know, salary is important, but for people to be happy, yeah, it's yeah. so much more. Salaries. Salary is important for sure. Um, I'm I'm not arguing that point at all. I'm simply saying that in addition no, I, to salary. I think you're totally right. I think that makes total sense. Again, the clarity and the security and just feeling valued. Um, right. Why don't we name one, one or two more? One of the two of the, the big ones that, that if somebody is acquiring that they are going to encounter. Well, the one that uh, I get asked about a lot, and you referenced Twitter earlier, um, is the dominatrix. So the dominatrix is the bully. So it's, uh, and I, I make a point in my book, so I want to make it here, that this is gender neutral. That's why in my book, they're caricatures. But I had a diversity, equity, and inclusion expert. A couple of them look at my illustrations and say, some of these, they, they're more male oriented than female. So, you know, you may just want to balance it out. Even though you say you're gender neutral, you know, people can, can read into it. So that's why I made it a dominatrix. Uh, but the general personality is that person who's the bully, who is just laser focused on the objectives and getting the job done. They're not there to make friends. They aren't there to build consensus. They are there to move against the new growth strategy. Now that personality can be enormously seductive and very beneficial early on in the deal. Yeah, after you've announced the deal. Are you talking about the head acquirer or are you talking about a guy already or a woman already in the company that's I've dominant? seen them on both sides. Okay. I've seen them on both sides. You know, people expect them more on the acquirer side. They've acquired now you just do what they say and that's it. But I've actually seen it happen on uh, on both sides. You can have people who now they've been acquired, maybe they felt undervalued before, and they see, oh, here's my opportunity. So they become a bit of a bully, right? Here's what the new the new regime, the new reign is going to be like, right? They embrace the new the new way and become a bully um, within the organization, and that. That person can be really, well, they can be long-term. And, you know, when we talk about Elon Musk, that is absolutely his, his leadership style. 
Now, who knows how this will play out? Yeah, so I want to know what you see here. We we know what the media sees, and it's easy it's easy to to just here's, go by. Here's what I would our instinct, Here's what I would but, say. At least anyone working there has eyes wide open. He does not. He doesn't hide how he leads. He's he's said up front. I'm hardcore. If you can't take it, then go. When I talk about the dominatrix in the book, you may not appreciate or understand that that's that personality type until you're in it. And you're thinking, oh, my gosh. And that's why I say at the beginning, they're they're myopically focused on getting the task done. So you're either you, you either can deal with that or you aren't. But they aren't there to make friends. And so in my view, Elon Musk is absolutely that personality type. What remains to be seen is, okay, how will this play out in the short term? It, it's, it looks catastrophic. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, in my, in my experience, the dominatrix actually, uh, or bully is very successful at the beginning because they're getting people, you know, Hey, change is happening. Love it or not. Love it or leave it. But what can happen is you lose key talent because people say, I, I can't put up with this. This is not the kind of boss I want to be with. My values don't align with this person. That's what you're seeing happen at Twitter. People are saying, okay, I am out of here. This is, this is not what I signed up for. This is not the company I, I wanted to work for. It doesn't make either side right or wrong. You know, again, Elon Musk may be successful. Uh, jury's out on that, but. The the comment that I make about the dominatrix that you may recall from the presentation is that person can be very helpful at the beginning. But if you have them on too long, you lose good talent. Uh, your productivity will drop because people if you're if you've got the majority of your workforce operating in a you know fear is the operative emotion, you don't get the best work from people. So they burn out faster. So you either leave people or they or you, you lose people or they burn out. Right. You probably get some quiet quitters. Yes. It makes me kind of think of, uh, you know, when a new president comes in and they, they have you ever analyzed that situation? You know, everything just changes. No, uh, but it is a regime change each time. What's the most difficult part of your job? I'd say convincing the people who need to hear this message that they, they would benefit from it. Said another way, I would say, you know, as a marketer, I know first and foremost, when you are marketing and trying to sell something to someone, you need to find what their pain point is and present yourself as the solution for that. The problem with what I do is it's a problem no one wants to own. No one sees, you know, a lot of the human challenges, the human capital challenges that we've talked about as their problem. So I've identified a problem and I've highlighted, hey, that 70 to 90 percent failure rate, a lot of a lot of that is driven by not anticipating how people react to change and overestimating how people can pivot. I can help you. I can help you solve that. But no, no one consistently feels they need to own that. So it's why I always emphasize I work with forward thinking CEOs, business leaders, private equity. The people that bring you in obviously understand that they need something. Exactly. But then I guess there are other people that maybe are also in the seat. The majority. <laughs> the majority of people don't feel it's their problem to own. But it's why I'm thankful. I guess one of the silver linings from the pandemic 
since we probably are all looking for silver linings from that is it's heightened the importance of valuing your people, acknowledging the role that they play and and supporting them um, through through change, through uncertainty. I mean, I talk about M&A as the largest, as a tsunami of change and uncertainty. And then we have the pandemic, which is the biggest change and uncertainty tsunami any of us have ever faced. And But it's a great data point and reference point to say, so how did you see people react to that? You probably saw a different side of people that you never imagined. It's because everyone reacts to fear and uncertainty differently. And so I use that as my proof point. I said, even even if you haven't gone through a merger and acquisition, let's just talk about, think about people you saw and how they reacted to the change that was happening and the ongoing uncertainty. And yeah, we talked about it even in, in that uh, PMPA session. Everyone, I, I saw everyone almost nodding their head going, yeah, I saw, I really saw a different side of people, people I thought I knew who reacted differently. And so I, I say that only because I, I think the toughest part of my job is people not wanting to own own that pain point as necessarily theirs to own. Yeah. Um, but that is starting to change. And and as you said, they I'll- just need to read your book and, and then they'd understand. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, just a couple more questions. I like to to ask people when you think of happiness, what what do you think of? Feeling valued. Yeah. I think it's why it's such a thread through the work that I do. You may recall even in the in the the keynote that I gave in the opening, I talk about how would it feel if you had a number hanging over your head all day? Right. Whether you were at home, the store, at work, people tie tend tend to tie their value to their work. And so in a merger or an acquisition, when there's so much change that happens, people lose sight of what their value is. And so my goal in the work that I do is to not only help CEOs understand that sharing a vision of where this is going and where you see the possibilities and why you pursued this deal, and then how both companies brought value to that deal, the role that both companies play, that helps people start to see, oh, okay, then here's what I do that can be valued. Here's the role that I can play. And, you know, to your question before of how how do I help companies, you know, beyond the leadership, that's where I really work with those direct reports to say, don't tie your value to what your past achievements were, because those 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 were really important to now. But now your value is going to be defined by how you contribute to the future. Do you think that people you know, they feel that number based on work. Do you think they shouldn't evaluate themselves as much by their work um, as they do? I do, but that's human nature. So what I say is don't let other people define that number or your value. You define that number. The clear you are on defining that number that's over your head, it doesn't matter. You can be in changing situations. And again, I talk about it from a merger and acquisition standpoint. But the clearer you are in your value, as you navigate and face new situations, they don't jar you. You aren't destabilized because you're clear on your self-worth. 
And, and that's what I really emphasize. Don't let other people define the number. You are in control of that number. Well, I appreciate so much this interview. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I think. Thank you. Same here. I plan on being in contact with you in the future as a consultant, et cetera. I think that you could be a tremendous resource for a lot of people listening to this. So again, if they want to find you, if they want to read your book, give me another shout right now. What You bet. So first, I would say the only platform I engage on is LinkedIn. I, I unfortunately, I just don't have the bandwidth <laughs> for any other platform, but I'm on LinkedIn a lot. I share advice and tips through my LinkedIn posts and articles. Also on my website, which is jenniferjfondreve.com. Uh, and I can spell that J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R-J Fondreve, which is F-O-N-D-R-E-V-A-Y.com. And there is where you'll find uh, the personality test that I uh, highlighted at the beginning of our conversation. You can answer, I think I've got five or six questions, and it'll help you see, well, who might you be working with? And it's a very tongue-in-cheek um, personality quiz. So, you know. Does this person watch these types of movies? What would this person say, you know, at your birthday? But it's a, it's a fun way for you to maybe identify which of the personalities you're working with. And then my book, you can find the Audible paperback Kindle version on Amazon. Just put in now what and my last name and I will pop up. Thank you. Thank you. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com. Today's